coming up on Art Palace. Um, okay, so let me ask you this question. What is the difference between death and dying? Hmm. Welcome to Art Palace, produced by Cincinnati Art Museum. This is your host, Russell Eyrig. Here at the Art Palace, we meet cool people and then talk to them about art. Today's cool person is Cole Imperi, dual certified thanatologist and public health educator. The first question I always get asked is, they're like, well, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm a thanatologist. And what is that? Right. Exactly. Um, so thanatology is a $10 word, I always say. <laughs> um, and it is the study of death and dying. And then usually people are like, oh, like Thanos. Which, yeah, yeah, it <laughs> yeah. comes from the same place. Um, so thanatology as a field. So that this is what's really interesting about the field. As long as humans have been living, we have been dying. Right. So humans have been living with and around death forever. Yet thanatology, that word was coined in 1905. So it's a really young field, which is uh, and, and part of that is because we are a very death avoidant culture and society. Humans, you know, we are built to survive. So we don't want to think about death. Right. But we have avoided it so successfully for millennia that we were like reluctant in creating you know, let's, what would happen if we studied this and what can we learn in studying death and dying about life? And so that's what, that's what I'm interested in. That's what my whole life revolves around. So, and, and, and what was the path that took you there? So at no point when I was a kid, was I like, you know what I want to do? I want to grow up to deal with death. Yeah. That never, ever occurred. I wanted to be a singer. I wanted to, uh, I had, you know, very early signs of my extreme extroversion. I right. love being around people. I love talking to people. I never meet a stranger. Um, and I just sort of, it found me. Um, and that's something that you'll probably hear a lot of people who work in death and dying say. Um, he, there's sort of two pathways that I find people take to get here. One is they have a serious traumatic loss and they're like, this significant loss opened this whole world I want to work with it the rest of my life. Um, or you have people like me who I've had loss in my life. Um, some people say that I've had a lot of loss, but that never motivated me to mm. be in this work. Um, it's what at this point, it's what I would call it's my calling. Um, and I have a very clear mission. My goal by the time that I die is I want to improve the way that we deal with death and dying in my lifetime in the United States. That is what I'm trying to do. So is there, I would imagine it, it, there's a difference between going into thanatology versus like going into sort of funeral work or yes. are they related in some way? Yeah. So, um, okay. So let me ask you this question. What is the difference between death and dying? Hmm. To me, death is a very big abstract idea and mm -hmm. dying is an action and is a very real physical, like it's, it is happening in the present. Yeah. So, so. Okay, then my next question for you is, when do we start dying? <laughs> the minute you're born? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that, that's a correct answer. Some people also, I had, I had somebody tell me that um, you start dying in about your mid-30s. <laughs> I'm in my mid-30s now, and I was like, oh, okay. Um, it's also a theory or an idea that you start dying when your mother is in utero. Because mm -hmm. the eggs that the egg little egg that became you is in there. Yeah. So technically you've been alive that long, but technically also haven't you been dying that long. Yeah. So death and dying are different areas. And there are people who work with end of life or thanatology or anything in there that are interested in one area more than the other. Um, death is usually considered the end of the life cycle for any living thing. Um, and that is where in the U.S. in particular funeral service comes into play. So you're a funeral director. If you like dealing with the death side of things, you show up on the scene when somebody has died and then you deal with the dead person and the loved ones, right. right? Now, if you're working in dying, you might work in hospice, you might work in palliative care. If you're a physician, you might 
work in oncology, so you confront that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, you might be a public health educator. Um, I'm also a death companion. Um, death companioning is older than dirt. It predates death care and healthcare systems because as long as we've had societies, there have always been people in the community that you would be like, oh my God, somebody died. Who do we call? There's always been someone in every group that has known what to do with that. Um, and that's called companioning. Um, and so I serve in that area as well. Um, death companioning is non-medical and non-judgmental support through a loss. Mm -hmm. Um, you might also hear people being called death doulas or death midwives. Those are subspecialties within the umbrella of death companioning. So does that clear up a little bit, like the difference between death and dying and like where people might fall on the spectrum professionally? Yeah. No, I just, I, yeah. And I, I think I, I sort of already understood it, but I just wanted to make sure I clarified that yeah. for folks too, that are like, listening. you're yeah. not necessarily like, you're not a f- doing funeral work. No, That's although, not- I, so I'm a little different, mm-hmm. honestly. Um, most people who are in thanatology, they, they, they tend to just have, you know, a, a really specific area. Um, but I am a certified crematory operator. Oh, okay. I've, cremat- I've cremated people. Um, I also have consulted with death care businesses, mm-hmm. funeral homes, cemeteries, crematories, and suppliers have been my clients for over 10 years. And they hire me to help them understand, like, what's going on with their business because mm. I understand um, – how humans think about and deal with death and then what makes them make certain decisions like about what funeral home to choose or not choose. Um, and so I have clients all over the world now in death and dying. Um, I also have been brought in to speak. Um, so I spoke for the Latin American death care association in Guatemala a couple years ago, and there were people there from all over the world. And my talk was simultaneously being translated into three languages. So <sighs> I do deal, and then as a death companion, I also actively deal with funerary traditions, but I work alongside the licensed funeral director. So like um, in December, I um, was working with a family. I led the committal service. I helped bury the person. Um, So I, yeah, so I am involved with the the whole spectrum um, of dying to death. You mentioned the Latin American Death Care Association. Do you think that there is a sort of universal way that cultures deal with death or is it, is it very cultural and, and depends on where you are? No. So just for like an example, when, um, I spoke, um, to the Latin American death care association, part of why I was brought in was because I had the American experience with Mm -hmm. all these clients. So in, um, some countries in Latin America, death care, like funeral services were government provided. It Mm. was not open for somebody to start a funeral home. So in the U S that's what we do, right? Like, um, it's, it's a business opportunity. You can start a funeral home. You can set your own prices, right? That's not the norm in other country, uh, other countries around the world. Also the way that we pay for funeral services in the U S is not the same as elsewhere. There are some countries where it's normal for families to pay a flat fee per month, um, to a funeral provider, funeral service provider. And then if anybody in that family dies, they call that provider, but because they're paying monthly, it just like covers anybody in the family. Wow. Yeah. So, Something that I always try to tell Americans is just let's zoom out on ourselves Mm -hmm. and understand that the way that we do things are not necessarily the way other people do things. Neither is right or wrong, but um, we all die, but we all avoid it in different ways, (laughs) so to speak. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. I'm, 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 I, am really interested in different ways people do deal with, you know, death. And like my husband is from Brazil and um, they use, um, at least where he, uh, grew up, the burial system is kind of similar to what you see in like, uh, New Orleans and the kind of French style of, well, I I mean, you should describe it better. The the graves are above ground. Yes. Um, and in New Orleans we do that because the water table is so high. Okay. Okay. So now, I'm going to just say, like, I went to, I went on multiple tours in New Orleans and they told me that's not true. Well, okay. That it's more about French tradition than necessarily, it, it I'm, but I'm sure it's both 
are beneficial. Yeah. But like sometimes the tradition comes from the result of the geography. Right. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause that's like a unique challenge and this is, so I also serve on the board of two cemeteries here in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. One is Linden Grove Cemetery in Covington, Kentucky. It's 175 years old. 22,000 people are interred there. And then the other is Heritage Acres, which is a brand new cemetery, like buying brand new land and then turning it in. And one of the things that we have to think about is where the water table is. Mm-hmm. Because when you dig a grave and you let's say you dig the grave the day before, um, if the water table's up, the grave can get full of water. Yeah. And that can be upsetting to some people. Um, so when you are living in a river valley, like we are down in New Orleans, like in, especially in certain parts of New Orleans, those graves can just fill right up. Yeah. So building the mausoleums on top of the ground allows you to not... <laughs> be plunging people into water. Yeah. Um, and it also has to do with st- soil stability and all that kind of stuff. But, um, but yeah, to your point, it, you, you both are right, I guess is what I would yeah. say. So, yeah. Well, one of the things I, I guess, why I even brought that up though, was, was that that whole system involves this like step of removing the body. It's like renting the yeah, space. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that's really normal. And other parts of the world that the idea is that, okay, Cole dies and let's say my husband gets me a plot for five years and then five years comes up, let's say he can't afford it. They're getting me out of there and somebody else is going to take that space. Now that is, that is normal for a lot of other parts of the world. And when they hear what we do in the U S the idea that somebody who died 1700 years ago still has the quote unquote rights to that land to take up that land, mm. you know, um, that's crazy to other people. But I mean, think about it. And, it you know, is crazy. I can, it is. I mean, I can see, you know, both sides of that spectrum for sure. No, I remember actually when I was doing those tours in uh, New Orleans of the cemeteries and, and thinking like they're describing the system. And I was like, this makes a lot of sense. Like I, I yeah. kind of like its efficiency of, yeah. of space management and yep. like, oh, well, this, this whole tomb is for like a family basically. And after they get like taken out and their remains get kind of put into the bottom with everybody else. And I was like, huh, that's, that makes a lot of sense. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So um, tell uh, what I was going to ask you too. uh, You brought up death companioning Mm -hmm. earlier and I was kind of curious about like what, is there a certain type of person that makes a good death companion or a certain sort of attribute a person should have, or, or is it, is it really open? Do you think? So what's interesting about this is it's considered an emerging field, Mm -hmm. but I have a problem with that because as long as we've been dying, like there've been people in the community that have been helping you get through it, right. Helping you deal with it. Like for example, my mom's side of the family is Roman Catholic. And so when someone dies in her family, who do they call first? the priest, right? Right. Let the priest know. Cause then the priest is like, okay, cool. I'm going to get the funeral together. I'm going to let the bereavement committee know they're going to bring food by for you guys for the next two weeks. That's companioning. Now priests and clergy are death companioning through a spiritual based pathway, mm-hmm. but there's other forms. So people who become death companions are literally everybody. Like there's no one type. And part of that is because you can be a death companion and focus on Um, usually diagnosis is considered the starting point of the spectrum. So let's say that I find out that I have stage four cancer today. Mm. I might be like, wow, I'm not prepared for this. So I'm going to reach out to a local person in my community who does this. They've done this before. They are going to provide me non-medical support, non-judgmental support. They don't care what my faith traditions are or not. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be like, okay, Cole, here are things that you probably need to do. And then they're going to be like, they're going to be able to give me referrals. So if I'm like, man, I don't have a will, they're going to be like, I can refer you to somebody located in your neighborhood that can help you with that. They kind of just, they companion me along mm-hmm. the loss. So you could be somebody who likes to do what, what we what we might call legacy planning or funeral planning. Um, then when you start dying, there's different phases there, even all the way up through active death. There are doulas who have specific training um, to be able to know what that looks like. They're okay with being around people who are dying, and they can be that supportive element in the room that makes the rest of the family and friends also be okay with it. Mm -hmm. Then you have people that have training with the death aspect, so they can help with like 
home vigils, washing and preparing the body. They might also be licensed funeral directors. So they can like start helping with the care before the person goes to the funeral home. Then there are people who only deal with funerals. And then there are even certain death companions who deal with spiritual aspects long after the person dies. There are some religious traditions where you say prayers in certain ways or make offerings for certain periods of weeks and days afterwards. Mm -hmm. There are people who will companion others through that. Um, so who, who, who does this, right? Really anybody. I have, um, two online certification programs that people take with me and then you become certified as a death companion or certified in thanatology in the death companioning. I have people who are 19 years old, all the way up to in this, in their sixties. And I have people from rural areas in the U S all the way to people who have never had a death and work in completely unrelated fields. And why is that? It's because we have empathy. It's because we've all had a worse day. We've all had a loss. And once you experience a loss, oftentimes you know what it feels like to not be supported and to not have people there. And so many people find that they have an interest in, well, what can I do to serve my community in this way? And that's why it can take all these different forms along that whole spectrum of care. Would you tell us a little bit about your podcasts? Too? Yeah. And, and, and just, uh, I know you have a couple, right? Yes, um, I have two. And uh, my husband does the production work, so it's kind of cool for the two of us to get to work on these together. Yeah. Um, actually, my husband and I, when we met, I was 18, and we met at the radio station at oh. the college. So we have been, and then we had a, a morning show. Okay. Um, so we've done this. Married with microphones. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so the first podcast is called Life, Death, and Tarot. There'll be a total of 108 episodes and we're up in the 40s. Um, that podcast has two different episode styles and they alternate. So one week there is an interview via a tarot card reading, three cards, tarot cards. There's 78 in the deck. They're not magical. They're not mystical. They don't tell the future. Um, and the 78 cards each represent different themes and patterns that are common in a typical human life. And so when you flip a card, it's an opportunity for introspection because it might be like, hey, what kinds of issues are you having with duality in your life right now? Right. You know, and then it gives you a chance to check in. So I have found in my work with death and dying over the years that tarot cards have been a really nice way to think really deeply in a way that isn't scary, in a way that isn't necessarily connected to a religious tradition. And so I model that because um, you'll listen to some of my guests who talk about very serious things that have happened in their lives. And we're able to, I'm able to demonstrate how you can be around uncomfortable conversations and it'd be totally fine. And then the alternating weeks are what are called mortisodes. And that's where I share little tidbits and thoughts that come from my work in thanatology. Yeah. I liked, I saw on your website, you, you mentioned that you don't necessarily believe in sort of the magic of tarot mm -hmm. in the sort of maybe the way most people think of it. Yeah. Like media or movies depict it. Right. That has never been but my experience. That, that it is a way of just like opening up a conversation yeah. um, and that th those are enlightening that it's yeah not so much about predicting the future but about introspection yep and yeah. becoming more present and mindful so for example so tarot cards are full of symbolism there are people who will read tarot cards and they only look at the plants that show up and mm. tell you what that means so for example if I would pull a card for you and there are tulips I might say Russell, when those tulips start popping up around the art museum, pay attention to changes in your life. And what that's going to do is every time you see a tulip, it's going to ground you and you're going to be like, hey, what's what do I have planned today? These are in bloom. Mm. And it's a way that it actually helps you become more present. Hmm. So, yeah. yeah. I know. I love it. I'm so excited about <laughs> that podcast and like kind of teaching people that. Well, and I think, I mean, that's really connected with art too. I mean, I think the, the way we do that already with images and things, and I mean, I think that's what we hope art does, right? That mm -hmm. we hope that you look at something and it sort of makes you look inside a little bit more. Um, yeah. and that sort of stopping is, is important to it. Yeah. And I'm sure you have patrons that have particular paintings or pieces here that they just are so called to. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there's symbolism that's attached there. Mm. Like they might be like this plant is in there or this, you know, this blue plate. And my grandmother had a blue plate right. and that's the same mechanism there. It creates meaning. Mm -hmm. And when people have more meaning in their lives, they have higher levels of day-to-day -day happiness and less levels of depression type symptoms. 
Yeah. So, and then your other podcast? is called The American Thanatologist. Um, the trailer episode is up now. And then the first season, the What's Coming is published. It's on my website, AmericanThanatologist.com. But I haven't published those episodes yet. Okay. So I'm probably going to do that over the summer. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought um, if you would like, we could go look at some art in the galleries now. I would love that. Yes. Awesome. Um, well, normally we look at one piece, but I couldn't decide today. Oh! Because we have multiple. I, I mean, we could probably spend a whole day looking at things, but I, I want to try to keep it a little bit, you know, tighter. Yeah, yeah. So I think we should look at two pieces okay. unless we just get really moved and, you know, can't help ourselves but talk about something else. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I have two pieces that I think you will be interested in. Okay, I'm ready. Great. So, yeah, we are not in the galleries. Nope. But but we just were. <laughs> we were. I promise. <laughs> we just were. Yeah, we, they were doing uh, construction and uh, deinstalling an exhibition. So there are really loud drills that would not have uh, been able to record over top of. Yeah. And, you know, it was really cool to be able to see because I've been to the art museum before, mm. but during business hours and to be walking through the gallery space with lights off and things covered up and then. You know, I never thought, well, when do, when does the, the work happen? When do, you know what I mean? So it's kind of cool to get a behind the scenes. Well, yeah, of that. That, that's why I was telling you, I'm like, I can't be too angry at them because like they're doing the exact same thing I'm doing, which yeah. is saying like, okay, this is our time. We're closed. Let's get out there yeah. and do something where the public's not here. <laughs> so yeah, like all of that kind of work has to happen either on a Monday when we're totally mm-hmm. closed and they've got this whole day to do it. Or uh, very early in the morning before we open. So it's like usually they're they're doing most of that work. And sometimes they do construction while we're open. Mm-hmm. But uh, we try to minimize that as much as possible because, you know, there is also the idea of the museum as this kind of like sacred space. Yes. Right? There's mm-hmm. a lot of similarities between museums and churches mm-hmm. and certain like... Um, ways and, and even just the expectations people have of them yep. um, and their experiences in them. So we try to not do too much construction unless absolutely necessary when we're open. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we, we stopped and we looked at two pieces. Um, mm-hmm. And the first one, I don't know, did you, did you have any guesses that we were going to look at this or did you know what, where well, I was? I, well, honestly, I thought that I was going to see paintings. Oh, okay. Because death is something that is often depicted. There are definitely ones I mean, we could have gone to. It's I a know. top hit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, actually, I, I picked these the two we did look at because I think there's a lot of similarities in them, too. Yes. Um, but yeah, no, I was thinking about that when we were... Um, just sort of like when I was saying, oh, we could probably spit, I could come up with a whole tour of, yeah. you know, things to look at that would have been perfect. So yeah, there's plenty of paintings that deal with that. Um, but yeah, we, we started in the ancient art gallery and, and, uh, and I, I want to say that's gallery 101. Mm-hmm. And we started uh, looking at the mummy of an adult male. Mm-hmm. So this is to me always like a really weird thing that is in an art museum almost because it is literally a body. Yep. It's a human. It's a person. And that is so bananas. Like Mm -hmm. I just, I still kind of can't get over how weird it is that we have this on display. Yeah. Um, and it kind of, one of the things I, though I do like that we have, and I noticed you were kind of looking at it is we have this, um, picture of the x-ray of the mummy yes. right next to it. Yep. And I feel like that sort of freaks people out more than the mummy itself. Yeah. Because it makes it confront that you're similar on the inside there and like, Oh man, that's that, that makes it real. Totally. Like think about kids. I remember when I was a kid and you learned about the mummies and you're like, this is the coolest thing ever. And then they come to the museum and you get to see a real mummy. But in the U.S., you know, let's say that grandpa is dead. They're not excited to see dead grandpa, right? No. But man, let's go see a 2,000-year-old dead man in a museum. Right. You know, it's really not that different. But we, the idea of like, there's like this magic behind, oh, it's a mummy. Yeah. You know, and that makes it not scary. Um, because I think there's like the layers of how the mummy is treated and wrapped and the symbolism that's layered on top. Mm. So it makes it allow us to feel more separate from death. And that's why it's cooler and more interesting. And nobody bats an eye. Nobody really is like, I think a lot of people see mummies in museums and stuff and they don't really realize that the remains are in there. 
Yeah. I, I mean, I maybe don't some people don't. That. I was going to say, actually, I don't when you, I do actually think there is still a little bit of unease with it, but it is packaged in a way. Haha. That you're, you're, is, uh, you're like, you're like, but this, but this is okay. This is an okay yeah. instance. Like there is something about it. Maybe it is just sort of the tradition of a mummy is a thing you see in a museum. Yep. Like, so I don't know if that's part of it, but I, I definitely would say there is like when kids are see it, there, there are some who are probably like, whoa, this is so cool. And then there are some who are like, wait a minute. Yeah. Like there, there, there is definitely a little bit of fear that mm-hmm. I, I see on people's faces sometimes, especially kids. Um, and they are both like attracted and repelled by it at the same time on this, on that level. So the, and it's kind of funny because I've noticed docents who give tours, like, sort of play up that creepy mm-hmm. factor mm-hmm. as well with them. Mm-hmm. So they are aware of it and, you know, they will sort of lean into the spookiness of it mm-hmm. um, with the kids sometimes yeah. um, and in sort of wield it, wield that power over them for a second. Um, and it's, it's really fascinating to watch. Okay. So what's interesting about what you guys have here in the collection and when you were actually staring at the mummy in the case, there's all these artifacts that mm, are yeah. laid over top of the x-ray, x-ray yeah. so you can see where the symbols were placed. So if we want to talk a little bit more about tarot, for example, sure. that's another parallel to how important symbolism is, is to being a human. That's very much part of being a person. Right. And it's been that way forever. Um, so some of the artifacts that are were like placed inside the body cavity, um, there's a two-finger amulet that was over the left abdomen um, that was used to close the incision. It's two fingers. It's a representation of fingers. Um, hands have long been an important symbol. Um, they're also, they show up in tarot cards. Um, mm-hmm. there's entire tarot cards that just have a hand that's holding a symbol. Hand symbols often kind of magnify the, whatever else is being represented there. And it connects us to our humanity. Um, there's also a frog, the frog amulet, um, ensures rebirth and, there's a certain type of tarot deck that also has a frog that appears in it and it's associated with that youthfulness, which is connected to rebirth. So why, why the symbolism thing? So I referenced this earlier, but one of the things that I'm really interested in is that, um, the more meaning you have in life, like the more of a sense of meaning. And that's a very individual thing for some people, their greatest sense of meaning comes through a religious tradition Mm -hmm. for others. Not at all. That doesn't even enter the picture and that's fine. But the more meaning we have, it kind of is like a security blanket. We feel better about the world and we feel better about the afterlife and we feel better about like that things are not as chaotic. Symbols are often the vehicle that we have to understand and be associated with meaning mm. to the point that if this person, you know, was mummified and they were like, Oh my God, we forgot the frog. You know, there's so much meaning in that. They'd be like, Oh my God, they're not going to be re- reborn or it's going to be harder for them because we have put so much into the meaning of the symbol. And the other thing of note is like the frog, that is a creature that is separate from a human that Mm. lives on the earth and we cohabitate with, but we have chosen it as this representation in our own worlds to serve us. Right. Right. Like there are no frogs that are like, we need to put the image of coal (laughs) in with our ancestors. (laughs) You know, they don't do that with humans. It's, it's totally like, like a human experience. Um, so anyway, when I look at the mummy, the, the symbol aspect is what I notice because I understand the importance of meaning. That's what makes us feel okay about when someone dies. Cause it's hard when you confront a loss and you feel like, what was the point? Why did this happen? We're left with these unanswerable why questions. But if we know that we, we put the frog in there so that that person can be reborn, that gives us a sense of resolution. I was just thinking about, I mean, a lot of, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm mixing up the mummy here or the mummy case that we have nearby, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, one of the things too, I think that connects with that idea of meaning, um, and in the afterlife from the sort of Egyptian standpoint is that it seems like it's so structured, mm-hmm. like there is such an order to it and that the, 
process of preparing the body is like considered a part. It sort of seamlessly flows into what happens after you're dead. It's a bridge. Yeah. So you have in the images sort of depict that too, where it's like, well, here's the body getting prepared and here's what happens next. And mm-hmm. it kind of takes you, it like walks you through it step by step of like, okay, here's the sort of nuts and bolts like body preparation and now here it transfers sort of fluidly into the more spiritual side of that Mm -hmm. um and the religious side of that and Mm -hmm. here is you know this god judging the soul or whatever you know these different processes that happen yeah humans want to be sure and so one of the ways that we find like find ways to be sure when it comes to death is these traditions and rituals and symbolism Mm. and we have done this across cultures, across time, across countries, you know, everybody does this in some way. And I think, um, like with like Egypt and mummies and stuff that is so well known. And I think we often forget or don't notice how we're still doing this on our own ways today. Um, I teach uh, at two mortuary colleges. Mm -hmm. Um, I teach at Dallas Institute uh, Funeral Service out of Dallas and then Mid-America College of Funeral Service out of um, Louisville. And there's only like 10 standalone mortuary colleges in the U.S. right now. Mm. So my mortuary students, one of the assignments is I ask them, what is an important symbol to your family? Just what is it? And some people have a hard time with that because they've never been asked that. Mm. Um, But then they'll be like, oh, my gosh. Um, I have one student who talked about how her grandfather came to the U.S. from Mexico. He planted pecan trees. And ever since then, he's always had pecans in his pocket and gives out pecans. And now the family tends these trees. And so Mm. that pecan is a really important symbol to that family. Um, Dimes. This is a common thing in the Cincinnati area because of our German tradition. There's this belief that after your loved ones die and you find a dime, it's your loved one like checking in. So what we see in funeral service is sometimes these symbols show up at the funeral, like the pecan gentleman, for example, there's probably going to be pecans at his funeral service, like as a snack or handed out or like Mm. tree seedlings. And so we do have that same mechanism today. Um, It's just less like glitzy and glammy as Egypt and mummies, you know? So yeah. do you have a symbol or just a symbol that's important to you even? Oh, geez. I don't know. That's really, that's really tricky. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely couldn't come up with one right off the top of my yeah. head. Probably. It's, it's a good question to ask people or to even think about because yeah. that's what as a death companion, when people are like trying to come to terms with the, the fact that they're going to die and what do they want for their funerals? One of the best questions to ask is like, what are the important symbols or patterns that have been in your life? Um, because that's something that they can ensure is represented after they're dead mm-hmm. that will carry on their memory. After the mummy, we walked over to gallery 110 and the Cincinnati wing. And we looked at the memorial to Elizabeth boot Duvenek. And, uh, you seemed pretty excited right away when you saw this, like yeah. you, you seemed at least familiar with it. I think you, you, you had seen it before. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I love Frank Duvenek. I live in Covington. I live in main We have a bronze statue, mm-hmm. um, there of him. And, Um, I live in a house that was built in the 1860s and up on my third floor, when I look out the window, I, especially in winter, I feel like I'm looking at a Frank Dubinac painting. Oh yeah. So he's, he's a, he's a a real bro for me. I really like him. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. Um, and anyway, the piece that you pulled, it's, um, beautiful. Um, it's the effigy like of his wife that he so devoutly loved. So what I thought was so awesome about this. So first of all, there's a big plant across her, a big palm frond. Um, I just completed a fellowship at the Lloyd library museum here in Cincinnati. And my research was on Thanabotany. Thanabotany is the study of how we use plants to deal with death and dying and cope with loss. So that was all symbolism focused because a lot of the way that we used plants was what those things represented. Mm -hmm. So as your little, the placard said that uh, across her body lies a large palm frond to symbolize triumph over death. And palms have a big association with the three Abrahamic faith traditions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. Um, And so when we see the palm, that tells us a lot about the lineage of the person that's represented and where they ultimately came down from. Um, so we have, it was so interesting to me, like you have, you know, Frank wanted to represent and honor his beloved and she's covered in this big plant 
you know, and it's just amazing. It's right there in front of your face. We do so much with plants when it comes to death and dying, but we don't even like really notice it. Now, the other thing that's interesting about Frank Duvenek and this piece. So he was only married to her for like two years. She died suddenly. And this was his first sculpture. So he was 42. And then he's like, took on this new thing. One of the most common things that people regret on their deathbeds is stuff that they did not do. Hmm. And one of the most common reasons that people didn't do the thing that they wanted to do was because they tell themselves that they're too old. Hmm. And I think Frank is a great representation of a way to live your life. His wife died devastated and he wanted to honor her. And so he went whole whole hog in, you know, and created this amazing piece. And he was in his forties when he did that. And he had some help too. We should mention yeah, from Clement Barnhorn, who, uh, is a more, who, who is a, who had done it before, a very established sculptor. So, you know, he, he got some help from somebody who knew who was, who, who knew the ropes, but yeah, it's, it's kind of great to, to, to take such an about face and to like, no, no, we're going to do this and not be afraid to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing that, and you guys point this out is, um, Elizabeth's nose. Yeah. Okay. This so is one of my favorite parts of this. Let's like, talk about this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause so we have a drawing, I think by Lewis Ritter that's on the, uh, the label for this mm-hmm. work. And it shows a sketch of Lizzie by Lewis, um, appears her profile. Yeah, yeah. And it appears also to be like posthumously drawn, right? Mm-hmm. Like it looks very much like, um, she's already died yep. and, uh, her nose is definitely not the same nose that mm. we have on the sculpture. The nose, yeah. the nose on the sculpture is much more idealized and yes. yeah. And so let's talk about that. So this is kind of, it's beautiful. Um, yeah. so her nose in real life was larger, like had a, like a hump in it. Yeah. It's got and a little bend. In the sculpture, it's like this beautiful nose where you would go to your plastic surgeon and be like, I want her nose. Right. So it's so good. So why was that decision made? Okay. So when we love somebody and then they die, death is like the salt of life. So somebody dies and what happens when you add salt to soup or something. Yeah, you can bring it brings out the, out the flavor. Yeah. It brings out the good flavors and it brings out the bad flavors. And so when somebody dies, oftentimes for the people who are left behind, our memories instantaneously just get like heightened of that mm. person, good and bad. Yeah. The bad moments with them are maybe bigger than they actually were. So too, the same for the good moments. So Frank, he loved her and the nose thing would be considered like a flaw. Most people in the U.S. would consider like a big hump in your nose is like not an ideal nose. Yeah. He gave her that in the afterlife because he loved her. And to him, she's probably the most beautiful thing to ever walk on the earth. And so this was how he saw her. And um, some people would say, oh my gosh, that was so wrong. You should not, you know, do that. But this and this type of sculpture is not about being accurate. It's about being emotional. Yeah. It's about representing that emotional feeling and love. And so that's what was, you know, I'm making this up. I didn't talk to Frank about this, <laughs> but that's a really common thing that we see. And we see this even in modern day people who there are people who are commissioning sculptures and engravings for beloved spouses who die and then um, get these big monuments and stuff built at these big cemeteries. It's still happening today. Well, I think it's also, there's something about, I was, I was reading something recently about just the, the kind of way, um, a photo of us can be very harsh, you know, like we don't like seeing photos of ourselves a lot. Um, and we want to look our best. Yeah. And, and, and there can be one way of looking at it. That's like the, the photo is the, the harsh reality. Right. Mm -hmm. But a photo isn't harsh reality because we don't see like photos. We don't, Stop time in this one particular moment where you're in the middle of saying something and you're, you know, like, so we don't see in that sort of frozen way of a photograph as well. So I think you can say like, oh, this is inaccurate, but there's also another way of saying like, no, like the way Frank saw her is, is, is accurate, right? Like the way he thought of her is another truth that is not simply just, this is what her nose looked like too. Yes. Yes. I mean, like if you think about how you see your husband versus how somebody else sees him, if you saw a picture, like the, the, uh, the imagery that we have of our loved ones in our mind is very different than a photograph right in front of us right? because we have that emotional 
side there, which is real. And um, when you take a picture or something or like this illustration of her from the, the profile, it's it lacks that. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things to go, going back to the palm fronds and, mm-hmm. and something I've always noticed about that piece that I really like is that to me, it feels like a, a very um, great representation of a sort of dissolving of physical into spiritual. And mm-hmm. that's one of the ways that it uses the fronds actually is that the, at the top where her face is, is very kind of feels very concrete mm-hmm. Um and then as it goes down, the 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 palms sort of abstract her in a way. Mm-hmm. And then the palms mixed with this sort of fabric that is covering her. Um, also, just it dissolves into something that's pretty abstract. Yes. And then it, the way that the fabric actually sort of like drapes over the edge yes. of the piece. And tumbles off. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's like it's living. Yeah. It's living. And when I see that, I see the movement of grief and working with death and dying. One of the things that happens to people who have a loss sometimes is uh, we have to realize that our grief is something that will never leave us. And it's something that we have to move throughout our lives with our entire lives. And when you box that grief up or try to keep it sustained in one corner and try to make it inert or still, that's where you tend to have problems. Mm. But as long as you're allowing that grief to have movement and freedom to coexist in the space with you, you're going to be able to have a better relationship. And when I see his representation of his wife, I see that it's powerful. I mean, Mm -hmm. the way that the folds of that fabric are, I mean, and the fact that it's in bronze is crazy. And when I look at that, I see the emotions of loss of grief of how in your grief, the person you spent your life with just becomes 20 million times more beautiful than, you know what I mean? It's just like, it's a very emotive piece. And like the mummy, I don't have that reaction when I see the mummy because that stuff is precise. Mm. What, you know, the process there, it's precise. There's specific orders. There's a certain number of days. There's a certain number of steps, but like what Frank did, that was all soul. That was all spirit. Yeah. And the mummy thing is more like physicality and precision almost. Mm. To me, it's very different qualities and representations and components of loss. If you think about the way the mummy is physically, like the images are composed, it's very ordered. Yes, right? even like, the way that the the fabric is wrapped. Right. And then look at look at Elizabeth and or Lizzie. Did you call her Lizzie? Yeah, we 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 feel comfortable with. We're, we're okay, because I was terms. like, oh, I always call her Elizabeth. Okay. No, um, we, yeah, her name is Elizabeth, but we do actually call her Lizzie all the time. Okay, well, Frank I th- and Lizzie. I, think, I like it. I think that's what he called her. So yeah. we just sort of have uh, decided we're on like first name terms. Yeah, with I love that. Lizzie. <laughs> I love that. I wonder what they would say about this conversation. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I just the the way that the Egyptians sort of show that it it is like a very, like everything's in sort of, um, strips and bands and mm-hmm. it's very, it feels very orderly, uh, compared to the sort of loose fluid nature that becomes the, the memorial to, to Lizzie. It, 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 it it's so much more loose. And the other thing that's interesting. So the palm frond, for example, mm-hmm. that is very ordered the way that the leaves sure. like spike yeah. and also they end in sharp points, mm. but the way that it's laid across her, it doesn't I don't come away being like, look at that sharp, orderly thing. It's it's natural. Yeah, it's beautiful. I think it's probably also because they kind of radiate, right? Mm-hmm. So so while like sun, yeah, yeah. So while and again, that has a very kind of spiritual feeling. That shape mm-hmm. again, um, and it feels like something coming, you know, sort of blossoming out or exploding, or you know, yep. there's a lot of sort of again connections. I think you can make with the idea of spirits and, and the spirituality of the piece. Um, so yeah, I think that's it's it is another thing though that I think that verticality of it or the, the, you know, the sort of orderliness of that is another thing that to me takes it into a, a, a place of abstraction as well, where it becomes less about what the thing is and it just becomes shapes and, and, and design. And, and I'm really interested in that also just because I can't break away from knowing that this is at the end of the, the 19th, um, the end of the 19th century Mm -hmm. here. And we're getting into like that abstraction has started and is Mm -hmm. moving on and it's going to carry us on into the 20th century and moving forward. So it's both something that's happening in art, but also it relates so perfectly to what this piece is about. Yeah. 
Um, and the other thing that I think is interesting is like with a mummy, there's no real personal characteristics, which is part mm. of why I think it doesn't freak a lot of people out. Like That's there's, true. there's no face, right? Yeah. It is like, we don't preserve the face. Um, but like with, um, Lizzie, that was the focus. It was this beautiful mm. rhythmic undulating fabric spilling out around her and her face and her hands. Mm, and that's yeah. all that we see of her. And with the mummy, there are no hands. There is no face. It is like the opposite almost really in a way. Um, something that's really, that's like, maybe it's the, cool to juxtapose those two pieces that, uh, you know, the, the sort of anonymous nature of the mummy is another thing that makes me so sad though about it. Yeah, Cause it's like, who was this person? Yeah. Like, you know, I think somebody said they know their name from the, the wrappings what and some of the writings. And, yeah. But like, who were they like as a, as a human? Yeah. And know? I don't think we'll ever we know that. We don't, we don't get any ideas of the personality. Yeah. And I think with, um, what Frank did with Lizzie, like you can get a sense for her mm-hmm. because we're seeing her through his eyes. And that's also how we start to know each other as people, right? Like someone will be like, uh, Hey Cole, um, I want to introduce you to my friend so-and-so let me tell you about him. But that's being filtered through that other person's eyes. And I think that's a beautiful way to remember each other. Yeah. I just want to uh, go back really quickly just to clarify something. Um, uh, the piece, the, the memorial in the museum is not the real memorial of, mm-hmm. of Lizzie. Um, she's, she's in Italy <laughs> buried. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there's no bodies in that one. Yep, just yep, over yep, in the yep, mummy. Yep. Good disclaimer. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, just so people know, cause we do, I do have people ask that a lot actually yeah. is that they think like, Oh, there's somebody in here. They yep. kind of approach. I would say actually a lot of people are more creeped out by Lizzie yeah. than they are by the mummy. Which yeah. is funny because there is no actual body there. Um, and I think it has a relationship to the emotionality. Yeah. That's what we're afraid of with death. Not the idea of it. It's very practical. Yeah. It's the emotionality of it. That and, is what we're avoiding. And, and maybe that it is closer in time to us. Mm-hmm. And so it looks more like death to us in that yeah. way. Like we recognize, oh, this is a very funerary kind of thing that yes. like you recognize that pretty immediately it, it translates. Um, the other thing is it, that piece is, is not actually bronze. Um, mm-hmm. it is plaster <laughs> oh. that's painted to look like bronze. Okay, okay. So it. it looks like bronze. A lot of people assume. Fooled me. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's meant to fool you. Yeah. Um, but what it, what they did is, you know, they made the mold to cast the real one in bronze, ah. which is outside so it can sustain it. Mm-hmm. And this was a copy of the actual memorial. So it was just I cast see. in plaster plaster yeah. um, and then painted to look like bronze. But that means it's also incredibly fragile. So interesting. Um, and you yeah. would look at that and think it was the heaviest thing on the face of the earth. You yeah. Know? We have a problem with people touching, touching it, it because yeah. of that, because it looks so sturdy and, yeah. but it's not so interesting. We don't want you to touch any of the artwork. But yeah. Please don't touch Lizzie. Yeah. <laughs> She's very fragile. I just want to say that. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people don't realize that because it, it it's very convincingly painted that it's but yeah it's sort of a a, just a plaster cast of the Mm -hmm. original so yeah um well any other thoughts did you say everything you wanted to say about lizzie and the mummy yeah great pick okay like seriously it was really cool to compare that and i hope people listening think about what they think about that and what did they think about mummies growing up and um because i think that's something especially in america everyone is taught about egypt and mummies I mean, every, that's like a thing. It is a weird thing. And it you, I, I and it's also very specific and like actually tiny. Yeah. You, you mean know? like in sort of terms of like how big of a practice or. Yeah. 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 I think it's weird how I, I'm, I mean, I'm glad today we're sort of thinking more about like how this relates to us. Cause that's something I don't think a lot of people do think about when they look at the mummy. And I'm always surprised by that. Like mm-hmm. to me, it's always like, you know, it's easy to sort of look at the mummy and, and the beliefs of cultures where they sort of have this idea like you're going to take on everything from your life into the afterlife and it's just like this continuation and there's almost this sort of like boy how crazy was that mm-hmm. and then you're like well how different is it from your beliefs like what do you yeah. believe and like is it all that different like yeah. where are the similarities and and what are the differences and in even the idea of like i would say most people who believe in an afterlife still think they will exist as 
essentially the same person mm-hmm. in the afterlife. And and it's like really you're you're you believe kind of the same thing as the Egyptians minus like the pots and pans, right? Like yeah. you don't get to take <laughs> yeah. your cutlery with you, yep, but, yep, but yep. it's otherwise not all that different. Right. right? Like exactly. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's it's interesting to like think about where your beliefs are compared to these beliefs. And I'm that's what I'm really interested in and in sort of I don't know, like, yeah, why, why were those beliefs important to them at that time? And why was this, why did this make their culture the way they, you know, I don't know, even, even thinking about, um, um, something I was talking about a little bit earlier, one of the things, there's a certain point where I, I realized, like, I, I try to see things like the Egyptians, um, when you look at Egyptian art and it looks a little bit odd compared to the way we would depict reality, let's say. And one of the things I try to do, and I don't know if I can ever do it, is to imagine like, what if they didn't, what if this is literally how they saw things, you know, like, what does this mean? Like to not sort of think of it in the way that we look at it and it looks odd, but like, what, like, what if that's just how they thought things looked and, you know, the way we depict things doesn't necessarily mean it's the right way, you know? Yes. Yes. So, yes. Anyway, definitely a lot to think about and definitely death and art are deeply intertwined and show up in, I think more places than people realize. Yeah. We could, we could probably do a whole nother episode with a whole different pieces. So maybe we should, we should do that in the yeah, future. Maybe again. around October. Halloween oh, theme. we should. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for being my, my guest today, Cole. Thank you so much for having me. And if anybody wants to find my podcast yeah. or my courses or just info, they can find me at American Perfect. Well, thanks again. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Art Palace. We hope you'll be inspired to come visit the Cincinnati Art Museum and have your own conversations about the art. General admission to the museum is always free, and we also offer free parking. Special exhibitions on view right now are No Spectators, The Art of Burning Man, and Paris 1900, City of Entertainment, which closes May 12th. Join us on Mother's Day, Sunday, May 12th, at 3 p.m. for a free gallery experience with Mom. Explore portraits of mothers and works that deal with motherhood in the collection. For program reservations and more information, visit CincinnatiArtMuseum.org. You can follow the museum on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and also join our Art Palace Facebook group. Our theme song is Ofran Musicale by Bacalao. Hey, got a moment? Why not leave us a nice review or rating on iTunes or wherever you're listening? I'm Russell Eyrig, and this has been Art Palace, produced by the Cincinnati Art Museum. 